the thing about both helping to craft the story and writing the story yourself is that you need to figure out why you're doing it. And for a long time, I was writing stories or novels, coming up with ideas that I thought would sell copies, that I thought would be interesting to other people. And the moment you stop doing it for that and you start doing it for either yourself to enjoy it or for a purpose that goes beyond necessarily selling copies, that's when you start to enjoy it. And that's when you sort of find your purpose in publishing and you find your purpose in stories and why you want to tell them, who you want to see them, what, why you want them to be in the world, who you think they might impact, what is the impact you want them to have on people. And it just becomes so much more than a commercial proposition to you. Welcome back to another season of Third Culture Africans. I'm proud to say Africa's number one award-winning career and entrepreneurship podcast voted for by you at the African Podcast and Voice Awards. I am Zezeriaki Sal, your host. I'm obsessed with all things entrepreneurship and our show is dedicated to igniting your entrepreneurial journey, sharing resources and giving you the tools to pursue your dreams fearlessly. We celebrate artistry and stories from those brave enough to create something and succeed. Inspiring, motivating, and full of wonder, discover how those who succeed do it. Your support helps make this show bigger and better. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and join our community with weekly newsletters curated just for you. Let's connect on Instagram and Facebook at Third Culture Africans. Sit back, relax, and let's do this. Hi, Nancy, and hi, Aura. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you for having right. us. <laughs> Incredible. Well, I tend to make a list of books that I'm going to read this year. For both of you, I guess reading books is a, a daily work affair. Um, Ore as a commissioning editor at HarperCollins, um, and Nancy the same as a talent and audience development manager at HarperCollins, and also the founder of Afrieda. Yeah, did I say Afrida. that right? <laughs> Afrieda, so Africa Reader, Afrieda, get it? Oh, oh <laughs> yes, <laughs> Afrieda. There we go. <laughs> you both have been in publishing. Um, for the last few years and have now recently co-authored an incredible book and a project called This Our Country. Yeah. (laughs) Of this, of this our country. Of this our country. I think the of, of is important, right? Yeah. It is very important. (laughs) I guess if I can, if I can give you guys the floor to talk about um, the project and how it came about actually. Absolutely. So, Ore, this is where I pass the mic no, over to you. She always does this. <laughs> <laughs> this is her little tactic. Um, <laughs> so, uh, it started. Gosh, um, let's say it was it was September twenty twenty, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was September twenty twenty. I wasn't say September last year, but it's not because we're now in twenty twenty two. Yeah, September twenty twenty, and. Nancy and I are in a group chat with a bunch of other people who work in publishing, a bunch of other friends. Um, and we were just talking about recent acquisitions that people had made. And uh, someone, we would, I think there was a specifically like a Nigerian book that had been acquired recently. And then Nancy was like, oh my gosh, so many books that have been acquired recently have been um, acquired by, have been written by Nigerians. And we were like, oh wow, that's so interesting um, that there have been so many that have been written by Nigerians. Like we keep churning out these amazing books. We're so fantastic. Da, 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 da. Um, 
And then I just had a thought and I was like, yeah, we are. And we always like write a lot of novels and they're very prestigious and they get these great advances and they get this great publicity, all this kind of stuff. So I was like, hmm, like, I wonder if there's something in that. So then I messaged him actually separately and I said, what if we worked on a project that just contained a bunch of Nigerian writers and it brought them all together? And in my mind, I thought, I don't want it to be uh, a short story collection because those can be done. Those are always done. It, it needed to be intrinsically Nigerian in some way. So I thought, you know, Nigerians are big storytellers and obviously all these writers are writing novels. So like, what can we do that sort of speaks to that? And so I thought, oh, what if we do a um, a sort of collection of essays about their first story, the first story that they ever heard or were told, um, all that they they told themselves? And Nancy was like, I love the idea of bringing them together, but she was like, but that whole story thing, she was like, that's not it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, okay, what is it? She was like, I feel like it's something about like memories, about Nigeria, it's like more personal. And I was like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And so we sort of had to think about it and we we're like, okay, so it's about their memories of their Nigeria. And we thought about the different ways in which people experience Nigeria. No two experiences are the same. Um, no two ways of being Nigerian are the same. And obviously people, there are writers who are Nigerian who are living in different areas around the world or they live between Nigeria and somewhere else um, or they live still in, in, in Nigeria. So we thought we'd love to get those different perspectives. So then we started thinking about the idea and we thought, okay, what would it be? How long would the essays be? Who would we want to be in the project? And we pulled together a list of names, um, a list of organisations you would want to work with to sort of promote the book. And there were a lot of names. I think the list of names we had initially was 65 or something like that. And that wasn't even everyone we could have put on that list. That was just the people that we thought, okay, they could be in it. And then we had to whittle it down. But we then sort of put together a brief plan to show to my boss, who leads the Borough Press um, editorial team. And she was like, yes, this idea is fantastic. Forge ahead with it. And then I took it to acquisitions and everyone was immediately like, yes, this is amazing. Definitely do it, do it. And then we approached authors, um, which was quite long. And then we, once we had authors, then we had to work with contracts and do contracts for each individual author, which also very long. <laughs> um, and then, and then we sort of got the ball rolling. Um, and yeah, and that's that's how it all sort of began. Um, but like I like to say to everyone, it began with a WhatsApp conversation, which I think is yeah. one of the most Nigerian or even just <laughs> things to possibly happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was just going to quickly add that in terms of, you know, how it started, it was kind of a WhatsApp conversation. We were having that conversation anyway, but kind of, I would say probably a few weeks later is when the kind of the NSARS movement happened. And we were very intentional in saying that this wasn't a direct response to the NSARS. This isn't about kind of showing a positive reflection of Nigeria in relation to what's happening. But for me, it was interesting to see how, it was almost we were at a time when Nigerians around the world were feeling a certain way, questioning what does it mean to be Nigerian? And for me, it was interesting to see how this project could almost present storytellers as individuals who could hopefully help us come up with an answer um, as it relates to what it means to be Nigerian. This country that we you know, all love, but have we have mixed feelings about when we think about it. So it was beautiful to see how each of the authors or some of the authors responded to kind of, you know, the sentiments of Nigerians around the world at that time as well. Amazing. I didn't mean to start in a different format. I'm sure um, you guys as listeners of the podcast are going, ah, oh, but did she forget the bit where she talks about? Um, but I feel like to set the stage, the magnitude or the size of what you guys have chosen to tackle 
Um, and for us to kind of dial back, I guess, and look at, I guess, your careers and how you've been able to shape those. I can start with Nancy, actually, because Ori, you, you had you had a, you had a chance to introduce the project to us. Um, but Nancy, your career has spanned from TEDx uh, yep. to Twitter, <laughs> yeah. um, and and now to publishing, um, yes. which for a young person of color and also female, I have many questions um, <laughs> around that journey and how you arrived at you know working at HarperCollins which is you know one of the UK's most you know notable and prestigious publishers but at the same time how did your law degree transition to marketing content partnerships etc 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 yeah, I think it's a kind of long winding kind of journey, but almost to, you know, try and condense it into a few minutes. I would say the law degree happened because I'm Nigerian. OK, so <laughs> <laughs> to put it simply, I think when you get to a point where it's time to go to university, you're just thinking about, you know, there are a few options that are open to you. And it wasn't necessarily that I was forced into law. From my perspective, there wasn't one, you know, subject or area that I was particularly passionate about. And law felt like it made sense. You know, I come from a background of lawyers. Um, for me, just the idea of I felt that there was transferable skills from law, even though I knew that I didn't necessarily want to practice law. So I remember getting to kind of, I guess, around second year of university and just literally being on my bed one day, looking at the ceiling and thinking, Omar, Nancy, you need to figure yourself out because your mates are applying for these training contracts. You know that you don't want to practice, um, which is great, but you need to actually know what you want to do. And for me, that's when I kind of sat down and I thought, you know, what are my core areas of interest? You know, what are the things that I would be more than happy to do for free? And I had basically said, my two areas of interest is Africa, so the entire continent. And I say that intentionally, knowing that it's 54 different countries. Um, but also this idea of storytelling. Storytelling has always, you know, been with me as an area of interest. So um, when I, whilst I was doing my law degree, before I had finished my first degree, it was about, you know, uh, trying to get into these spaces, sending emails to different organizations and saying, yo, I'm 19. I don't know anything but I'm happy to kind of make coffee and make tea and just learn. Um, And that's kind of what led me down to first off, it was private sector investment in Africa. So I worked there for two years. um, And then I worked with TEDx Houston specifically, which is about African ideas worth spreading. So for me, that's still storytelling. Uh, The work I did with Twitter, for example, that is definitely still storytelling because I was working within the curation team. um, And my work there was focused initially on the Nigerian market. So in terms of the different things I've done that have led to publishing, although it feels very distinct in terms of different industries, they were all somehow related to storytelling and they were somehow focused on the continent as well. So there is a kind of, if you're looking hard enough, there is a kind of uh, stream between the few things I've done. Um, But essentially, you know, working at HarperCollins now in this role, it is about, you know, the power of storytelling, the transformative potential of storytelling, and just trying to make sure that as many people have the opportunity to tell their stories as possible. Hmm. My my question actually was was going to be slightly different to what you pointed out, um, which was, 
of those varied experiences, and and I'm a believer that no experience is wasted, and there's something in every experience that you have that can inform where you need to go next. Um, and I was going to sort of ask the question around what of those experiences do you feel have prepared you for this next phase in your career, having with TEDx being around, you know, some of our greater thinkers out of the continent and being exposed to them and, you know, their ideas, moving into the 21st century and Twitter, where, you know, content is king and voices are important. The correlation I I drew from your career is more of a duh, uh, unless if you look hard, um, because by osmosis, something would have to rub off. Something would have to give you the confidence which you and Ori had to embark on your first book, not being your own voices, but a curation of other voices out of the continent. So I guess to cut the very long question short, which is which of these or what of these experiences do you feel have influenced you now trans or or including, you know, author into your career? So without a shadow of a doubt, I would say TEDx Houston. Um, TEDx Houston is an organisation I worked with for five years. I started um, on the partnerships team, um, knowing nothing about partnerships, right? But it's a it's a community of individuals who are all volunteers who worked in completely different industries, but came together around a singular vision that we are determined to um, spread African ideas worth sharing, right? So African ideas worth spreading. Um, so from my perspective there was one particular event that I believe happened in 2014 where we had a vision wall where all 600 attendees in London had to write what are you going to do for the continent like what is your contribution you're sitting here you're listening to speakers like you know Chimamanda talking about we should all be feminists what are you as an individual going to do and so everyone was writing you know I'm going to work on education I'm going to work in this area all I wrote very simply in capital letters is a Frida, right? Because a Frida had been in my heart. It had been something that I was considering doing, having no, you know, background in publishing or, uh, you know, the, the formal world of storytelling. It's just an idea that I had as somebody who was reading a lot of short stories on the train into work, loving how I could, you know, in two minutes, be on the Piccadilly line in London and then travel to Nairobi for two minutes. I just thought that was just so powerful as it relates to traveling through stories. And so TEDx Houston, that event in 2014 was the first time that I wrote a Frida on a vision board. And the second I did it, first off, I was in my mind accountable to this whole community. You know, I had committed to doing it. And then we launched a Frida exactly a year after. And the reason I say that was for me the most kind of, uh, you know, important season in my life was because when I started a Frida, I realized I had no idea what I was doing, right? What, you know, when people submit their their work and you're reading it and you're like, bro, I don't even know if this is good or not. And that was what prompted me to say, fine, if you want to do something in this area, you have to understand how it works. You have to understand the 
you know, the basics of publishing. And that's what led me to apply to HarperCollins um, as a trainee initially. So this, you know, in terms of the journey, in terms of what I'm doing as it relates to the publishing world, it started from writing something down on a big wall in capital letters and then holding myself accountable um, to what I had written down. So, yeah. For anyone who doesn't know what Afrida is, um, do you mind just telling us more about the platform? Yes. So Afrida is an African literary magazine. Uh, It started in 2015. And basically, we just publish stories, short stories specifically from writers across the continent. So it's all freely available online. We publish stories every week. And for me, it's just important, you know, as I was reading a lot of literature that was, you know, produced in the West, one thing that I was seeing is that a lot of it, you know, it's, it's what we hear all the time. A lot of it had, you know, similar tropes, right? There were similar topics that were explored. And for me, as obviously somebody who was born and raised in London, but who traveled, you know, to Nigeria often, I was just missing the you know, the everyday stories, you know, the kind of stories of love or, you know, somebody wants to go out with her friends, but she has to wash the plates first. You know, what I mean, the, 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 the kind of everyday experiences that we know as Africans on the continent, but abroad as well. And so Afrida, what I love about it is that we just publish everyday stories. You know, you can have, we've published stories from Madagascar, from Mauritania. Like there are so many, we talk about being African, but a lot of times we focus on key countries right we focus on the Kenyas the South Africa's the Ghana's the Nigeria's but being able to explore the whole continent through a story a five-minute story that might make you laugh and suddenly you know more about Madagascar than the animals in the movie Madagascar you know that for me that makes me feel very warm inside um so yeah that's what we are literary magazine free stories every week and we have newsletters and we're on um socials and all that good stuff amazing (laughs) Ari. I didn't leave you alone. <laughs> Over to um, you. I guess a slightly different trajectory for you, Aurea, where, yeah. you know, you studied English literature, have been in publishing since your career began. Um, but also, in addition to this project, you are also a, well, a novelist uh, author yourself. What of the conviction to write fiction, non-fiction, curate other stories. At what point did you realize this is this is where I'm supposed to be? This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to study this at university. I'm going to come out, get a job in this. Was it conscious or is it, has it been, is it unconscious? Do you have a parent who's, you know, influenced by writing? Did you, you know, what, what, what were your inspirations? Um, oh, there are multiple, I would say. Um, so I think when I was a lot younger, like really like a child, um, my, I really enjoyed English at school. And I remember my mum always mentions one of my, um, teachers in primary school saying that I loved big words. Um, I was always acing the spelling tests. I was like, spelling tests, that's nothing. Like I can do, (laughs) I can do whatever. Um, and I just really enjoyed sort of discovery of it, of words and stories and things like that. And when we were younger, my sister and I would, uh, my older sister and I would leave our doors open at night and I would make up stories for us at bedtime. And I think that's probably where the whole storytelling thing started. Um, I don't even know if the stories were good, but I remember as I was clearing up my room uh, a little while ago, my, uh, my parents' house, I found like old stories that I'd written and I thought these are absolutely ridiculous, but it was clear that I'd enjoyed storytelling and writing stories for a while and even just 
discovering stories, whether they were good or not, and whether or not I could come up with good stories uh, or any stories at all. Um, but then as I got slightly older, my parents said that I basically stopped reading and I, I found other interests like TV um, mm. and like hanging out with my friends down our road and things like that. So they, they were actually worried about me for a time because they were like, this child is not reading. Um, and they would Read force me your to go- books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they would force me to go to the library and they were like, you have to pick out a book and I want you to tell me, you need to read it this week and then you need to tell me what it's about and then we'll go and pick another one. Like they really, really, that was something they really um, felt was important. Um, and they're both lawyers, so it's not like they were avidly reading fiction or anything like that. But they were just, like you said, read your books. They wanted to make sure that I was um, that I was reading, and mm. that I wasn't just sitting around watching TV all day. My eyes weren't going into like ninety nine little black and white squares. Um, yes. So it was really important for them that I did that. Um, and I think maybe my sister and I, even without realizing, both became sort of worse people. My sister's a copywriter, and she studied creative writing at university, and obviously I studied English. Um, but I don't think I realized that publishing was even a career and that you could curate and edit books until I was looking around universities. Um, and English was my best subject at school. It, it has been, it, it always has been for a very long time. Um, I think I just found it easiest to relate to and easiest to sort of understand. And so when I was looking around universities, I went to a talk at Southampton where I ended up going. And uh, Professor John McGavin, I, don't, I think he's retired now, but he he was the one who was giving the talk on English. And he said, well, here are the various careers you can do. And he was going through them out of, alphabetically. And he was like, you can do any career when you study English. You don't, English doesn't need to be what you do when you're studying. You can just, you can just um, in your career, you can just have studied English and do pretty much anything. She was going through alphabetically. And then he got to P and he said publishing. And I was like, what the heck, what is that? Oh. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm sure that there was a part by part of logic in my brain that was like in order to have a book someone has to publish it but I just didn't think of it as in his entire industry and then he was explaining it and he's like there are editors and they do this and there are people who do this and this and I was like oh my gosh that sounds so interesting I would love to do that I like telling stories but I don't know if I'm the one who's supposed to be telling them or if I'm supposed to be helping to shape them um and I didn't necessarily think that I was going to be a writer because I I just I thought there are people who are writers and there are people who help people become writers you know that whole thing of if you can't do you teach so I was like maybe <laughs> this is what I'm supposed to be doing so um I started looking into different publishers that he'd mentioned and um looking into the different graduate programs they had um, I did not get into any of the graduate programs um and in fact actually I started out in PR when I left university I got an internship in PR through Creative Access um which is a really great organization that helps to get um people from black asian and minority ethnic backgrounds into creative industries um so I started out there and then after a few months I realized that by the time my contract was up I didn't want to stay there and I thought if you really want to get into publishing you need to actively try and pursue it and someone from Creative Access actually helped me work on my CV, which at the time was a shambles, um, and helped me to uh, do some research about jobs that were going. And then I got my first job in publishing at Bloomsbury, actually working in the um, marketing department. But I met a friend through an organisation called um, Bayman Publishing, which was for Black, Asian, minority, I think, people working in the industry. And as it turned out, she was working at Bloomsbury as well, and she was working as a managing editor. And she said, oh, you want to get into editorial? I'll send you manuscripts and things like that. And you can write reports on them. So that was how I really got my start in um, even reading manuscripts or editorial. So that was my first piece of editorial work I ever did. And I think once I got to do that, I was like, I actually really like doing this. I like the idea of helping to shape a story, um, of being able to work from it from start to finish and be part of the journey of um crafting that story with the author and having also that relationship with the author as well um 
And in the meantime, I think I saw, I started obviously then getting more engaged with the bookseller and seeing announcements of books and realising that it was a, not even like necessarily a necessarily lucrative thing, but it was a thing that people did, that just ordinary people wrote books. It wasn't just famous people who wrote books, it was just regular people doing regular things who did it as well. And I think I then started to look back at other things I'd written and thought, okay, maybe like give this another go. Um, and I started writing something and then I sent it to my friend, actually the same one who had met at Bloomsbury. And she was like, oh, you should send this out to editors, uh, to agents. And I thought, mm, I don't know about that. But she said, no, you should. So I did. And then I got an agent, which was amazing. Um, and truth be told, people, I think because I say I wrote it in just over a month, it's quite short to be to be frank, but because I say that people think, oh, wow, that was such a like short, quick turnaround. You wrote it in 2020 and then you got a deal in 2021. But the fact of the matter is I was signed to my agent in 2018. I went through various drafts. Um, and I think the thing about both helping to craft the story and writing the story yourself is that you need to figure out why you're doing it. And for a long time, I was writing stories or novels coming up with ideas that I thought would sell copies, that I thought would be interesting to other people. And the moment you stop doing it for that and you start doing it for either yourself to enjoy it or for a purpose that goes beyond necessarily selling copies that's when you start to enjoy it and that's when you sort of find your purpose in publishing and you find your purpose in stories and why you want to tell them who you want to see them what why you want them to be in the world who you think they might impact what is the impact you want them to have on people and it just becomes so much more than a commercial proposition to you. Even though I'm aware I work for a publishing company, they obviously want to sell copies. But ultimately, if I'm not passionate about a book, it can have the greatest commercial proposition ever. I'm not going to publish it because I know that I cannot push it into booksellers' hands. I cannot talk about it for two, three, four years without getting sick of it. Like I know that I need to be absolutely obsessed with that book. I need to know that I want the, the visceral, passionate reaction I have to it to be the same reaction other people have. Um, I want the books that I publish to start conversations, to be informative, to be interesting, to be life changing. I don't just want them to be like an enjoyable experience. I want them to for someone to read it and turn to the next person and be like, OK, I love this book. And when you finish it, we need to talk about it, not just talk about how we felt about the book, but what the book did to you, what the experience of reading it did to you. Um, and so I think ever since I've discovered that um, writing became well I won't say it became easier because writing is not easy um but writing and publishing it it just it started to make a lot more sense to me I was like okay this is what you're doing it for this is why you like it this is the purpose of it for you um and then I mean also it's not been a breeze ever since either these things are difficult like I said I work for a company the company is not publishing books for fun it's publishing books is a business um but I found what my purpose in the industry is and that has made being in publishing it's changed it for me and it's meant that I feel like I have more of a purpose that goes beyond the bottom line and goes beyond just selling a certain number of copies it's giving people people a platform to say something that needs to be said start a conversation be informative um and just do something do something different um and to give the widest range of people from the widest range of different backgrounds the opportunity to do that amazing thank you have you found that within this journey for both of you actually that there have been things that have helped you along the way and I and I ask that purely because you know we've had Black Lives Matter which sort of took a huge torch on industries and elaborated on I guess internal and external aspect, aspects of each industry across the globe that either had the ability to foster and further diverse voices 
um, and and sort of the literary world is quite segmented. And you both have had the opportunity to work on projects that are varied. What would you say has helped you along the way in your career to continue to grow within an industry that perhaps has some marginalization and even just the way they categorize the authors and the work that's put out? I'm going to let Nancy go first. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't I think my answer might be a bit unconventional and I think what has helped me is probably the fact that you know similar to what Ori was saying actually is this this idea of the purpose behind it all I'm someone who is purpose driven to a fault right I am one of those as the spirit leads kind of um, people and you know when I think about storytelling I think about it as spiritual right I think about everything in this world is driven by stories you know when you think about you know your decision of what which toothpaste to buy it's because of the storytelling the branding you know how has that you know uh, company kind of conveyed that you need this in your life all of that is storytelling and for me because it's purpose-driven because you know for me it's spirit-led when it comes to um the work that we're doing when I think about how I even entered publishing how I you know enter this world of African storytelling it was because you know when I was 14 I received a Christmas present that's my origin story I received a Christmas present when I was 14 um I realized it was a book a few days before Christmas and I was just so heartbroken because why would my auntie (laughs) buy me a book I don't understand like honestly if you say if you don't love me just say you don't love me um but anyway so on the day, on Christmas Day, I unwrapped the book and it was Half of the Yellow Sun by Chibamanda. And I remember being 14 years old and staring at this cover. And, you know, Chimamanda as, you know, a name doesn't necessarily mean anything to me. You know, Adichie as a name doesn't mean anything to me. It could be Italian, who knows. But seeing Ngozi in the middle, seeing my auntie's name, seeing a, a name that was unmistakably from my part of Nigeria, it just broke my world open because it sounds so ridiculous to say now, but I didn't know that we wrote. You know, I remember going into, you know, school, my school in North London and just gathering all my Nigerian friends in school and saying, did you know that we write, you know, because we are in English and we are, you know, reading all these books by all these, you know, these authors who seem so far away. Did you know that we have stories to tell, you know, and in reading that book, in seeing my language written so eloquently and effortlessly on the page, it opened my world and it made me a new person, essentially. So when I think about the work that I'm doing, as it relates to finding authors from different backgrounds, I want to break somebody's world open. You know, I want to show them that you write, you know, you have stories to tell. Um, And in terms of you know, everything that's going on, whether it's, you know, conversations about, you know, diversity and publishing. For me, I don't get, I try not to get bogged down with all the kind of, you know, statistics or we need this quota. For me, it's not about the numerical value of how many, it's about the impact, it's about the essence of the one story or the one sentence and the impact that that can have in somebody's life. So I would say it's, yeah, purpose driven. You know, I'm I'm here because I need to be here. I'm doing this work because I need to be doing this work. Um, and that has propelled me, I guess, you know, through the the tough times. I would say. <laughs> Amazing. Biggest misconception people have about your jobs. <laughs> that we just sit and, this this is the easiest that, that we just sit and read all day. 
<laughs> okay. And okay. It's, it's, it's both hilarious and also very sad because I wish, I really wish that was all my job was. I really do. And there are some people for whom that literally is their job. There are people who are readers and that's what they do. They sit and read all day. And that is joyful. And I, I'm, I am half envious of them, um, but uh, it's also sad. It's, it's, it's funny also because um, we actually read mostly outside of work hours. Exactly. We get so many emails, it is impossible to read during the day. Unless it's a really, really quiet period, like just before Christmas, although even just before Christmas this year, it was not very quiet. Or like August. August is usually a very quiet month. Like almost nothing happens in August. Those Those periods of time, then it can be quiet. But every other time, and you maybe get some time to read, but even if, but the thing is, usually during those times, things are quiet. So you have time to do your actual work <laughs> so, because yes. you're not responding to emails or in meetings. Uh, but yeah, that is, that is easily and by far the most common misconception we have, which is that we just sit and read all day. Unfortunately, <laughs> that is not correct. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned the time outside of work is where you actually get to read. Would you say that there is, because there's something about consuming a lot. Um, especially for you, Aura, that then means you struggle to find your own voice. And you touched on it earlier when you, you talked about, you know, the time it took you to sort of navigate your voice and, and putting that down in, in your project. Um, but is there something about constantly engaging in other people's voices that you have had to find a way to work around in order to, to carve out yours when you're not in your day job. A hundred percent. Yes. It's funny actually, because there were a few books that after I sent the first draft of my novel to my agent and she was like, yes, this is great, great, great. And she was like, you could read, you should try reading this and have a look at this. And I have this, and maybe this is because I've watched too many legal TV shows or whatever. I had this fear that one day someone's going to say to me, someone's going to slap me with a lawsuit and be like, you stole the idea for this book for someone else. Or this <laughs> sentence came from this other book. You stole it. Mm. So I do everything in my power not to engage with other books that are similar to mine whilst mm. I'm trying to write mine because I don't want to accidentally steal. Because I would hate that. I would hate if someone stole something from my book and claimed it as their own. And I just have this, even though my book is so far from anything else I've read not so that it's like the most you can think ever but in terms of it's not I haven't seen the concept anywhere else and I know that I came up with the idea by myself that kind of thing I didn't want to steal anyone's voice um I didn't want to steal anyone's sort of style of writing and structure or anything like that so my agent would be like, yeah, you should read this book and you should have a look at this. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would not read them because, <laughs> because I didn't want to be accidentally influenced. I didn't want to accidentally steal someone else's idea. And also it was, it took me such a long time to find what my writing voice was. that I was like, don't now dilute it or um, not sound dramatic, but almost poison it with someone else's voice by accident. Um, because these things can happen subconsciously. Like, Obviously, you, it's like when someone sings the word of a song and then you find yourself singing it two minutes later because it's catchy, it just gets into your head. You can't you can't help those things. So I was like, don't do it. Don't be accidentally influenced by someone else's writing. So yeah, it's it has been really hard. I think with submissions, it's probably easier because I'm in a different mindset. But when I'm usually reading outside of my outside of my job, um, if my agent's like, yeah, read this book, or someone's like, oh, you should read this. If I'm trying to, if I'm working on my own edits or I'm working on a new novel or something like that, I'm like, you need to unplug as much as you can and focus on what your voice is especially I know how sacred that voice is now because it took me so long to find it I'm really conscious of not of making sure that I stick to that and I don't let anyone else's work influence it I'm I will probably as time goes on and I get used to what my voice is um become a bit more relaxed about it but for now I'm like 
just do everything you can not to get sued. <laughs> mm. I was going to ask you, Nancy, actually, because for you, you get you get a ton of stories, and yet you are still meant to find ways of helping people stay original and authentic in their early stages of their projects. Yeah. So I was actually going to jump in to say that RA story is extraordinary because I've read it <laughs> and <laughs> just echoing the fact that I'm not surprised actually that you weren't reading because your voice felt very, it just is like nothing I've ever read before. And you broke a lot of rules and you can only break <laughs> rules of confidence if you're not kind of overly influenced by what you're reading um, and taking that on board. So yeah, I wanted to echo what you said. Mm. And in terms, from my perspective, a lot of what I do is, you know, that editorial side particularly with the Frida I think with more kind of freedom and the thing with editing I remember maybe it was you I asked or somebody else in terms of you know what are the rules around editing you know is there a course I can go on is this is there something that I can do to kind of sharpen up my editing skills but it goes back to what I was talking about storytelling being spiritual right Um, and it sounds so woo-woo I know it does but what you find is editing is there is no hard rules around editing right it's not one plus one equals two it's as the spirit leads it's as you're reading this paragraph in your gut you know how could it be better you know um having a sense of what is the writer trying to say and is it being communicated in the best possible way you know so even when you make a suggestion as an editor it's not a definitive this will objectively be better if you do this it is all opinion based because we're all humans um so I think that's that's how I understand my role as an editor it's just this idea of we are working together in partnership to shape this to be uh, as best as it can be but yeah as the spirit leads <laughs> amazing sort of on a on a slightly lighter note last thing you both searched for on google oh god <laughs> um oh that's re- i don't i feel like there's a way for you to be able to figure that out it was probably something to do with a celebrity because <laughs> Um, oh goodness. Yeah, I feel like there is a way that you can figure out what you've last searched on Google, but I think it was probably something to do with a celebrity or to do with the way a word is pronounced because I'm such a little psycho that I get into (laughs) pathetic little, not even arguments, but just like little funny conversations with people about how words should be pronounced. I'm like, (laughs) that's not how you pronounce that word. (laughs) And they'll be like, yeah, it is. And I'm like, Google it. That's not how it's pronounced. (laughs) So I'll Google it. It's probably, it was probably, yeah, either something to do with a celebrity, like me trying to spot where they were in a film. Because you know, when you see someone in a film, you're like, I know that person, but you can't think who it is. Or it was me Googling how a word is pronounced. Probably one of those two things. (laughs) (laughs) I think for me, it was Googling somebody who I think has a book in them. So I came across them. I wanted to Google them to see their background, um, to see if I'm going to stalk them and slide into their DMs later today. (laughs) (laughs) You both have touched on briefly, actually, sort of the passion for the story. And there's something around people qualifying and also Aura, you you mentioned sort of for, for a long time not feeling qualified you know to write a story and Nancy you mentioned sort of your excitement in realizing that you know someone like you had a voice and could write what would you say and if if you had to share even it even if it's part of your experience and and realizing that you know 
as you said, or in normal people write these stories, you know, there is no prerequisite to putting pen to paper, as it were. Or is there? Um, I, w- I, I think, well, it depends, because I'm sure that there are people out there who would do the opposite of this. I think you're, anyone can do it as long as your motivation is not money. Why, sir? Because I think if you're writing to make money, you will never write what you want to write. You will always write like for a while, like I was doing, although I wasn't writing to make money, I was just writing what I thought would sell because I had my editor's hat on. But you will be writing what you think other people will buy and you will not be writing anything that is authentic to you and what you actually want to write about or the way that you want to write. I feel like your voice will always be influenced by the market and what you think the market wants rather than what you want to write. And I think that if you look at a lot of books that have sold really well um, or have been critically acclaimed, they're not like Shaggy Bane. It's it's a deeply depressing novel. I haven't even read it yet, but I just know that everyone's described it as amazing, but deeply depressing. Who would think that a super deeply depressing novel would sell over what, 20,000, 30,000 copies? What, who would think that? You would think people want to be happy, especially in COVID times. Like no one's looking to be depressed. But because Douglas Stewart knows his clarity of voice, he knows what he's writing about. He's not writing to make money. He's writing to tell a story that he believes is important and that is told through a voice that only he has. That's what's made the experience of reading it and made the story so exceptional. I think I, I can understand that people might want to write for money, and, and but I think that you will more likely make a career out of it if you have a voice that is authentic to you and not trying to adhere to what the market wants. I think there are there's certainly you can say with psychological thrillers, for example, that there's a whole market there that people specifically write into, and that's not to say that none of those books are inauthentic, but I think that whole thing started because someone said, I want to write a book about the way that the mind works and how that can be terrifying and how that can be, how that can be scary to some people and the different ways in which it influences our lives and our day to day. I don't think they went into it going, yeah, psychological thrillers are going to be the next big thing. And I want to make hundreds of thousands of pounds off it. I think, I do think that anyone can do it. Just make sure, I don't want to say motivation to pure, because I think the idea of purity is, very silly, but I just think make sure that your motivations are based on um, something that isn't money, something that is authentic and personal to you, because I think that is when you will find your voice most easily, when you will enjoy writing more and when you will, I think, probably have more success with it. Because if you're always writing for what other people want, you will never be satisfied because you will you will always be shifting with what the market wants um, and you will never get that sort of creative freedom that I think comes with when you do find your voice. I completely agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, one thing that I noticed that we are kind of, I guess, focusing on, well, we were focusing on fiction and nonfiction is something very different. Um, Fiction is a very specific thing in terms of creating new worlds um, and doing that successfully. But one thing that I have been increasingly interested in is this idea of our lives are stories. So as individuals, like, you know, when you come home um, after a hard day at work and you tell your partner, you know, this is what happened at work, you're essentially telling a story, you know, and that somehow has an impact on, you know, the next day, or ha- you know, decisions that you make going forward forward and I've been reading you know even when you think about of this our country it's not fiction it is personal essays it is a storytellers going back and saying this happened when I was 12 this is how it shapes me this is how it shapes my understanding of this country that we call Nigeria right and so for me um even reading something like 
Will Smith's memoir recently, which I absolutely loved. You know, Trevor Noah has a memoir, which I absolutely loved. Michelle Obama has a memoir, which I absolutely loved. For me, it was, you know, specifically Michelle Obama's memoir. I remember reading it and thinking, you know, when she was talking about what happened in school, I was thinking about what happened to me when I was in school. You know, it was the first time that it it forced me to actually see my my past as a story that is informing my future. So, you know, in terms of how everyone can do it, you know, not everyone is going to write a commercial memoir, similar to what Ore was saying in terms of, you know, publishing has very specific things that we do. We, you know, we talk about the love of stories, but we also have profit and loss sheets, right? Where we, mm. <laughs> where we determine how many we expect to sell versus mm. how much we expect to invest, you know. But, you know, something as simple as journaling every morning, writing down what happened the day before, writing down, you know, your hopes for the future, all of that is storytelling. And I'm on this kind of new mission which I haven't really launched into but it's almost to get everyone to write a memoir you know write I want every and exactly what Ori was saying write it for yourself write it for your children write down your stories because I am so heartbroken I've just finished watching a documentary on the Black Godfather it's on Netflix it's brilliant it's talking about um Clarence Avon um in terms of his his um impact in the music industry right and I just wondered what if we didn't have that documentary like all these stories would just disappear the idea that when an old person dies it's like a library burning and all their stories just you know going into nothing so for me I'm on this mission I want everyone to start thinking about themselves as a story seeing their their own stories as important as valuable writing it down and just passing it on to like the next generation I think that's so so important and everyone can do it you know everyone can write a few bullet points down every morning Mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned (laughs) (laughs) we've lived the last two years um in what will go down in history as our I guess centuries worth of Disaster, right? Uh, (laughs) It's funny how, you know, in history, you get taught about the Spanish flu and all of that. And you think, oh, you know, you don't necessarily place yourself in the lives of the people who have experienced that. Um, and, and we are currently living through that version of, of, of it. You know, some, some of those, I, I was actually a random Google that I did was, Googling how many years each of these sort of disasters lasted and some were sort of six years long. And I thought, could I do this for another no. four years? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> could I do this for another four years? Um, but a question for both of you, which would be, you know, h- how are you different than you were, um, I say last year, but it probably, you know, two years ago, you know, before we started sort of transitioning through through this time? That's a very good question. I would like to think and hope, I mean, maybe you can ask my friends and they'll say differently. Nancy, don't say anything right now. <laughs> um, that I am more appreciative of um, every moment, even the most insignificant moments. People say this all the time and maybe because we say it all the time, it becomes a bit repetitive and doesn't sound as important, but life is so fragile and so short. And to I, I'm trying I mean I still do moan I still moan all the time and sometimes moaning can be so cathartic <laughs> but realizing and it's not even a case of privilege just realizing that I have the ability to wake up today 
when I know that so many people over the last two years have lost people and so many people have not woken up. Um, it's just reminded me that every moment, no matter how insignificant, I need to be grateful. Even when things are going down the drain or they look like they're going down the drain, at least be grateful that you are here to watch something go down the drain. Even in the, like the tiniest things, like I recently started exercising. I don't think I exercised since or I have exercised since maybe last September, October, because I just didn't, I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> I just really couldn't be bothered. And I thought, let me just celebrate the fact that I have exercised two days in a row <laughs> so far this week. Like, that's amazing. Well done. Just, <laughs> I think, honestly, it's a miracle. Um, celebrating the very tiniest things, um, I think, is what I'm trying to get better at. Um, and knowing that even when things are, things are like, oh, do you know what, this isn't going the way I wanted it to go. Um, I've got a reason... I've got a reason to get up every morning. I've got breath in my body to to get up and get out of bed. I have the ability to do things. I have a job. I have a roof over my head. Um, I've, I'm, I think and hope that I've learned to be a lot more grateful for every single moment that I have. Um, and obviously it's terrible that it should take something like a worldwide pandemic where over a million people have died in order for me to, um, or a million people have caught it, um, in order for me to appreciate that. But sometimes you take it takes things like that to shock you into into gratefulness and I I think and hope that that's that's what's changed um, most significantly in the last two years yeah I think my answer is more practical I don't know if it's cynical but for me I've just realized that I can't do as much as I used to so I'm someone who I've really enjoyed just juggling a few balls at the same time right so work working at HarperCollins, volunteering at TEDx Houston, like running a freedom on the side. I really love this idea that I had so many things happening at the same time. And this this, you know, pandemic, this lockdown, it has slowed me down to the extent that I can't even imagine a world where I used to do so much, you know, and I do know that obviously, you know, rest is important. And for me, I'm prioritizing rest. I'm more intentional about, um, you know, taking care of myself, making sure I'm getting enough sleep. But also there's a part of me that is like, am I getting old? Is it like, (laughs) I will will I never go back to this point where, for me I feel like a long time a long time during this pandemic I was chasing the old Nancy I was chasing the productivity as I knew it to be and for me it's almost trying to make peace with the fact that you know this the thing that is going on in the world is huge you know and you shouldn't almost chase life is kind of before COVID and after COVID you know I mean it's not you can't go back to the before COVID like so you have to almost craft a new normal um, and it might mean that you don't get as much done as you would have in 2019 but you need to be you know at peace with that so yeah I guess that's the thing that I'm struggling with now um, and always being tired (laughs) 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 I think I think there's a real fatigue um, yes that has that has been created from the pandemic. You know, we are constantly living in a state of fight or flight, right? Like your every cell in your body is being threatened 24 um, seven. And, and that creates a level of fatigue that I think um, we aren't talking as much um, about. Um, and especially within, within our communities where, the opportunities are so little that there's a sense of pressure to seize whatever might be out there. Um, And I think heightened by, 
you know, not just the pandemic, but something as visceral as, you know, some of the Black Lives Matter movements and some of those stories um, that, you know, were unheard for a long time, um, sort of bubbling to the surface, um, creates, a, you know, a sense of fatigue that is is un- unreal. Um, and I think for a, for a long time, we will be, again, like a lot of the historical pandemics for a long time, they will define and shape um, our world moving forward. I guess my last question to both of you would be, what would you say has helped you along the way? Oh, the list is too long. Oh, start (laughs) Um, sharing. (laughs) (laughs) Um... People is probably the biggest uh, wide-ranging answer um, that sort of encompasses it. People say, I'm sure loads of people say this, but I genuinely have the best friends and family. And also just people who are outside friends and family, mentors, um, people who have shared their time with me, people who have shared their expertise, their empathy, their memes, like... I have the best support system and people who support you without even realizing they're supporting you. People who just text you randomly to check in um, or people who say, Oh, I heard you doing this. I want to help or well done for doing this. Or I think I've just realized that um, without any of those people, I would certainly not be here. Um, I would not be in the position that I'm in. Um, people like Nikesh Shukla, who mentored me a long time ago when I was first starting out in the industry. He didn't have to. He's a busy guy. He's a very busy guy. In fact, I tell him whenever I talk to him that he works too much and he needs to take holiday, <laughs> which he never does. Um, but uh, people like him who've shared their time, people like Natasha Barden, who mentored me when I was um, really junior at HarperCollins and helped me to figure out the open submission competition that I first ran for um, writers from uh, Black, Asian, minority, ethnic backgrounds. People like my best friend Grace, who's read half many drafts of my novel. People like my friend Angelique, who told me to send my novel out in the first place. People like uh, my friend Saba, who's told me, look, you need to organise yourself when you do this and this and this. People like my parents, who, um, even though they don't really understand necessarily the ins and outs of my job, are like, okay, tell me what you're doing, who encouraged me to read and dragged me to the library. Um, (laughs) People like various friendship groups who were just like, always supporting and always happy for you and always looking to see how they can help you. Um, I have this one aunt who ever since my mom told her I was writing a book, like literally a thousand years ago has been like, when's your book coming out? When's your book coming out? When's your book coming out? Always asking, always inquiring people like my housemate who would come into my room when I was writing my novel to be like, shouldn't you be writing when she could see that I was scrolling through TikTok? (laughs) Like (laughs) just people who have in one way or another in big or significant ways contributed to my life and invested in me in whichever way. I would not be here without them, absolutely for sure. Um, and yeah, I I can never, there's not a list long enough for me to fill in. Even my English teachers, I even forgot my, like anyone who come, like who told me to read a book or who was like, eh, you could do better at this. Anyone who gave me a critique, whether I liked it or not, because I've learned, I had to learn to like get, I don't like being critiqued, but like, I know it's important. Um, anyone who ever taught me anything, it's them, it's, it's other people. Um, it's certainly not by my own strength at all there's just it, it would have been impossible <laughs> but yeah it's, it's everyone around me genuinely um I'm just really really blessed in that way to have the very I know everyone will say I have the best but I I actually have the best it's me <laughs> I love that I love how you didn't mention me as well I was waiting I was like 
<laughs> I was like, she's going to say Nancy at this point. And it never came. But it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. Um, I would say for me, it's probably uh, stories. And that sounds so cringe. And I'm cringing as I say it. But honestly, I feel like, you know, sometimes work, not just working in this industry, but working with stories anyway, that you can get tired, you know, you can get tired of reading a manuscript and a lot of times you have to read them incredibly quickly because we're trying to acquire it so for me sometimes it just takes you know and I can bring it back to this our country you know working on a project like this sometimes it just takes a paragraph right and you read that paragraph and it speaks to you it goes straight to your core and you remember why you're doing it you know so whenever you know I'm going off in a different direction stories will always bring me home it will always bring me back and always remind me of you know why I'm doing the work um so yeah I'm very grateful to stories in general amazing can you both tell us share with us where we can find you and follow you on your journeys as you go along and then you know the link for Frida all of that good stuff. <laughs> and Aura, the book, the book, where should we find it? When is it coming out? I actually don't know the publication date, um, okay. but it's, it's, it's going to be spring uh, next year. So spring 2023. So sometime around like March, April time. And it's been published by Jonathan Cape in the UK, Putnam um, in the US and Penguin Random House in uh, Canada um, so far. So those are the places you can find it. You find it at all good bookshops. And it's what I would say. Um, <laughs> But support your indies where you can. Um, so yeah, if you must follow me, um, <laughs> you can find me on Instagram. I don't have Twitter because I like to protect my mental health. Um, <laughs> but I'm on Instagram at Aura Williams, uh, and I also have a website auraawilliams.com. Where I mean, I don't update it very frequently, but I will try. <laughs> but that's that's where you can find me. I am a Twitter head, so I'm on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just Nance Adimora. So that's Nancy without the Y, Adimora on Twitter. Um, Afrida is Afrida everywhere. So that's A-F-R-E-A-D-A everywhere. Um, and yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you, ladies, for joining us on this week's podcast of Third Culture Africans. Excited to be back in this seat with this microphone um, after our nice long break last year. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. I loved it so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you to over 20,000 of you that have tuned in and have continued to tune in. Because of you, our show is now distributed on Vodacom Africa's platform, My Muse. Your support helps make this show bigger and better. If you're a fan of the show, we would love to know. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and join our community with weekly newsletters curated just for you. Check out our free resources on entrepreneurship, productivity, finance, and leadership at thirdcultureafricans.com. You can now catch special episodes with video on YouTube at Third Culture Africans. Let's connect on Instagram and Facebook at Third Culture Africans. Let's do this. Thank you.